wonder how you would finish the sentence. The secret of contentment is... Did I hear someone say, taking a break from John's Gospel? Okay. Um, as people, we're all kind of driven by something, okay? Each one of us has a passion, a cause, a reason to keep on living. For some people, it might be uh, you know, a new experience in life, or it might be to succeed at something, or it might be your family, or it could be your friends, whatever it's going to be. Uh, we all have some kind of passion. And as we pursue it, we have varying degrees of satisfaction. Okay? For some people, there are actually kind of some great moments where you go, woohoo, this is awesome. And there are other moments for many who say, you know, I, I really struggle to know if I will ever feel fulfilled uh, for any period of time. Uh, it's, a, it's a real thing. Um, I think this was very um, eloquently um, expressed by my favourite knight of the British realm, Sir Michael Jagger, uh, who sings, I can't get no, it's profound really, right? It's, maybe it's not that eloquent, but it's telling, right? He says, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try and I can't get no, I won't sing it, but you get it. So what this guy is saying, for all of the things that he could possibly access in this world, and that's kind of a lot of stuff when you're 75 and you're rich and whatever, there is no satisfaction for him. Satisfaction turns out for many people is like a mirage on the horizon. The faster you run towards it, the more quickly it disappears and evaporates into nothing. Fortunately... God has not left us in the dark when it comes to satisfaction. According to the Bible, the passions that you choose in life determine the level of your contentment. Okay? If you give yourself to some things, you will surely wind up devoid of any satisfaction. However, if you pursue other things, chase after other things, actually they will lead you to lasting contentment that cannot be taken from you. So where's the secret of contentment? Well, it's right in front of us, 1 Timothy chapter 6, that uh, we just had read for us. Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, and he says to Timothy, look, everyone is running after something. Contentment is found in choosing the right goal. And the key is actually in verse 11. Let's just jump straight to the heart of this thing. Verse 11, have a look at it with me. But you, man of God, that's Timothy, but you, Timothy, flee from all this and pursue righteousness. What Paul's saying is it's all about where you're running. Timothy, you've got to run away from something and you've got to chase after something else. Running in the right direction is going to get you to that right goal. Now, I once, you may find this hard to believe, but it's true. I once had the esteemed title of the assistant coach of the under seven Avalon Bulldogs rugby league team. And it was an awesome role, I can tell you. One of the big challenges, if you've never coached the under-7s, is teaching the boys, when they get the ball, to run towards the try line. Um, sometimes they get the ball and they run a very, very long way, very fast, maybe 30 or 40 metres sideways. Uh, or perhaps backwards. Because, you see, they think you know, the goal is not to be tackled by the other team. And so they run away from the other team. You know, my job was to kind of train, no, no, you need to get to the goal line. You need to go that way. 
If you want contentment, this part of the Bible is telling you which way to run in your life. First part of verse 11 says, flee from all this. Flee from what? Well, the answer is actually in the paragraph before in, chapter, in verses 6 through 10. So let me just read that out again for us. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So what is God's person to flee from? We are to flee from greed. You look back a couple of verses, even earlier, verses 4 and 5, Paul is warning Timothy against some false teachers who were wanting to get rich quick on spreading lies. They were driven by greed. So to make the right choice means that you run away from the desire for more than you really need. Notice here that this is not a recommendation. And it's not a suggestion. Did you notice it's a command? It's an imperative. Run away from greed because it's going to kill you. Really. That's what Paul is saying. Unfortunately, you know, when we hear this kind of thing in our culture, we want to sort of minimize the threat. We sort of think like, yeah, this is on par with tooth decay. Could be a little bit bad, but I've got this. I think I can handle it. The yearning, that nagging niggle for more, a bigger, a better, an upgrade, it's actually deadly. And it causes people just like us to wander off from the faith, says Paul, and to pierce themselves with all kind of grief. It causes people just like us to be arrogant. It's a source of all kinds of evil. The desire for my fair share of just a little bit more is a serious threat. And here's the kicker. It's going to leave you discontent. You will not be satisfied. Greed has two sides, I think. I think greed has the grabbing side and the hoarding side. One part of greed wants to grasp more and more stuff for me. That's, that's the grabbing part. Regardless of anyone else's need, I just want more stuff for me. That's one part of greed. But there is another part of greed, which I think is a little more sinister, which is the bit that says, now that I've got all this stuff, I want to hoard it all for me. This is mine, and no one else can have it. Once you've got it, you kind of want to stash it away. Keep it in reserve just for that rainy day. I don't need it really, but I'm just going to keep it in case, right? Two parts to greed. Which part are you more susceptible to, do you think? Are you more of a kind of grabbing person or are you more of a hoarding person? I'm a hoarder. If you're a grabber, if you want to grasp at stuff, you might need to learn to be satisfied with what God has already given you. 
to trust that God can provide everything that you really need. If you're more the hoarding type like me, you actually have to learn to share. To look with generosity at those around you. You notice the word share because it's not yours anyway, right? It's on loan from God. That would, share, that, that would be give, right, if it actually belonged to you. But no, no, this is share. When you boil it down, and we ask the question, well, okay, what really is greed? What's it look like for me? We are left with kind of that distinction between needs and wants. You know what I mean? Like, what do I actually need versus what do I, you know, want? And our problem for us, in Roseville at least anyway, is that our notion of need is just really totally conditioned by our own materialism, by our own culture, by our diet of advertising and instant gratification. How do I know what I need? Well, I just look up, I don't look up to the top, I just look at the next rung up the ladder. That's what I need. I need one of them. I, I don't need to go to the top. Just give me one more of one of those. Seems to be the way that we shape our expectations. And so when you go looking in the Bible, right, for distinctions between like what do I need and what do I want, it's nothing there. Because that's not the key. Instead, God calls us to reshape our desires. Don't need to argue about needs and wants, actually. Begin with your desires. Contentment is going to come for you by cultivating the right desires. Just as Paul has said in verse 11, uh, which we'll go back to now, okay, we are to cultivate a desire where we run towards righteousness. So I'm back at verse 11. I'm going to read on a little bit more. But you, man of God, Timothy, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness fight the good fight of faith take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses instead of chasing after stuff that is going to distract you and ultimately destroy you timothy man of god you should pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness that's how you fight the good fight that's how you take hold of the eternal life that is yours. The implication, first of all, of this word that Paul gives to Timothy <clears throat> is that this is actually an active pursuit. You know, we've got this word, you know, flee, run away from this and pursue that. This word pursue, pursue righteousness, is actually the same word that we use for the word persecute. Okay, what it means is go for it so hard that it's violent. Go hard for righteousness violently, if you would take a bad Greek translation. Okay, so what is it that we're running for? If you look at that list of virtues, each one of them is significant <clears throat> there in verse 12. Um, but the heading, righteousness, I think sums them all up. Righteousness, you know, first of all, is a characteristic of God. How do I know what righteousness is? Well, God is righteous. He is the definition of what is righteous. And to do righteousness is actually to act as God would act. Uh, it's a way of living. Before it's some kind of legal status where we take the word and we sort of 
move it to call it justification. I stand right before God. Before it's ever a legal status, it's a way of life, this righteousness. Uh, It was God who commanded Abraham in Genesis 17, walk before me in righteousness. Okay, So righteousness is what we do as well as how we stand before God. So living practically as the people of God will mean that we do shun sin, that we do the right thing. It will certainly mean that we display God's character to all those whom we live among. We will worship truly, which is what this idea of godliness is. It actually means true worship. Okay, We will have our faith firmly anchored in the Lord Jesus. We will love God, we will love others, and we'll persevere in that. With all humility. So that's that list of virtues. That's the life that is the goal. That's what we're to aim for. This way of living is to be our burning desire. And the thing that struck me most as I pondered this passage through the week is this is not casual advice. Have a look at the emphasis that Paul places on this command. Verse 13 In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can't think of any words to kind of ramp up the amount of weight this command has. Like, how could you make that more serious? Like, Timothy, remember, we stand in the sight of God. And we stand in the sight of Jesus Christ, the crucified one. And with those guys as witnesses, I call you, pursue righteousness. And I kind of thought, well, if it's good enough for Timothy to do that, it's probably good enough for me. That's to be the goal. And of course, all of this involves the reshaping of my desires. That's what we've been talking about. I need to reset my compass. I need to kind of put some new coordinates in the GPS. And the question that we're all surely pondering is, well, how? How do I reshape my desires? Let me tell you that this takes place between you and God. One-on-one, day by day. It means spending time with God In his word. It means savoring every morsel of his word. It means depending entirely upon the grace of God. With all of the gravitas of that incredible command to Timothy in mind, we need to take time in our day to be with God and dine on the sumptuous diet of his word. Sometimes, you know, time in the Bible for us can look you know, a little bit like a drive through Macca's experience. You, you, you know how that goes, don't you, right? That's, you know, you drive up to the window, you get your food, you chuck your food on your lap, I know it's illegal, and you keep on driving, right, because you're in a hurry. And at the next set of lights, you kind of, you know, big chomp on the burger, keep on munching, and you drive, right? And we don't even notice the food going down, but somehow we hope that we've stoked the engine enough to get us through to the next mealtime. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Well, you know, with all due respect to Maccas, the food is wrong and the manner of eating the food is wrong and it's going to lead to discontent, if not heartburn, right? Okay. (laughs) Contentment comes 
from delighting yourself in God's word. Set the table, prepare well, get the mood right, put the phone on to do not disturb, set a time aside to enjoy a meal with God. I mean, the best bit about the meal is the person that you share it with, right? The fellowship. That's what makes a great meal. Enjoy a meal with God as you open his word day by day and luxuriate in the grace that you find there. God's word lovingly digested actually changes our desires so that we even want what God wants for us. That's the pursuit of righteousness. Well, so far in this passage, Paul has said that wealth is actually a trap that could lead to disaster. Certainly the greed that might come with that is the trap. Flee from that greed and instead pursue righteousness because that's actually going to lead you to contentment. What happens next in the passage is this solemn calling to Timothy uh, with a special command to the rich in verses 17 to 19. And I actually, I hear this as a warning. So I'm at verse 17. Have a look at this. Paul writes to Timothy, right? Timothy's a pastor of a church in Ephesus. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy's congregation in Ephesus had a diversity of socioeconomic groups in it, okay? Just as our congregation does here today, right? Some are rich and some not so much, okay? None is better than the other. Uh, All are equal in Christ, but some have more financial resources than others. Bigger, better, more homes, cars, uh, businesses, investments, superannuation, whatever it's going to be. And this is a distinction that has teeth in the people of God. We'd like to pretend that these kind of differences don't really exist in our church, but they do. And if we were willing to step back a few steps from the leafy North Shore, we would need to recognize that there are massive differences in wealth between us and let's say the people of Christian people of Tanzania or of South Sudan or of you know Latin America, whatever it be. And I know that referring to some people as rich and others as poor, it, it really kind of grates. It, it sort of feels like, oh, isn't that a little unkind? Isn't that a little, you know, politically incorrect? But actually... We see this in scripture, this distinction between rich and poor is called out. Kind of sounds tough, doesn't it? And it's not just the rich and poor distinction that's called out in scripture, but it's the distinction between the greedy and the generous. 
Paul writes this in another one of his letters in 1 Corinthians 5. But now I'm writing uh, you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, that is a Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a person do not even eat. So Paul's expecting, right, within the church that we'll actually make a judgment as to whether one of us is being greedy or not. And if one of us is greedy, then we're to treat that person who claims to be a Christian as though they were someone who was openly, continually sexually immoral or, or worshipping idols or persistently drunk or, or whatever, you know, name your favourite sin, right? That is to say the grasping, hoarding person will actually find themselves unwelcome in the usual fellowship such that they'll have to take stock of their behaviour with a view to them repenting and being restored to fellowship. That is a stern warning for the greedy. So a word to us rich people here. Don't be arrogant and don't put your hope in wealth. Don't be fooled. Instead, hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. We actually need to find our contentment in God, not our stuff, not our position in life, not uh, our pleasures or, or new experiences. We need to find our contentment in God's provision. So let's do good. Let's be rich in good deeds. Let's be generous and let's be willing to share. Throughout the New Testament, this means this sharing means giving money to the poor and giving hospitality to the stranger. Hospitality with friends is great. I love it. But that's not what hospitality means. Hospitality is actually when you welcome a stranger or a person who has nothing and you bring them to yourself and you say, share mine. That's what hospitality is. That's what generosity is. It's not having your buddies around for dinner, as much as that's fun and you should do that a lot, right? This is the kind of generosity that Jesus modelled for us. So we're to share. This is hard. This is not a simple thing. And if I am going to set my desires on God's way, on his righteousness, do you know what the challenge to that is? The challenge is, I may not actually believe that. Like, okay, I can see here in the Bible, it's, it's good, right? It's in the Bible. But do I actually believe that God will satisfy me? And this is where I really got stuck on the back end of verse 17. Have a look at it. It's commanding the rich to, to not be arrogant, put, not put their hope in wealth, but to put their hope in God. And look at the qualifier for God. Put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God is not stingy. God does not want us to kind of mope around like, woe is me today, is terrible. God's got a whole world of stuff for our enjoyment. How good is that? It's all provided. You know, Scripture is full of assurances that not only is God good, but he actually wants to provide all that we need. So 
here's a little favourite of mine, uh, beginning from Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. And forget not all his benefits. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? Uh, We read Psalm 34 a little earlier. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You see, the challenge for us is to actually accept the economy of God is for our good. He wants us to enjoy all that he has. The strange thing is that in God's economy, there may be a persecuted Christian in South Sudan who is suffering terribly with not enough to eat. And that person is also called to trust in the goodness of God. While at the same time, I enjoy incredible luxury and I live very, very comfortably. I am also called to put my trust in God and to depend upon him for my satisfaction. If God's purpose is served by us not having so much as we might have presently, and someone else having a little bit more, then praise God for that. If in that transaction God has worked character in me and in you, we actually will thereby experience greater contentment. That's really what, that's the heartland of what contentment is. I see the plan of God and I'm delighted that the other person has now a little more because I have less. That's the way it is in the kingdom of God. So according to the Bible, and particularly our passage tonight in 1 Timothy 6, the secret of contentment is to pursue God with all your heart. It's counterintuitive. You'd think that the secret of contentment would be to find your special thing and you know, hold that close to yourself. Well, it's not. The secret of God is to flee from greed and to set your desire upon him. Fill your horizon with God, who by his very nature is the one who gives us all good things for our enjoyment even. Let me pray for us. God and Father, thank you that your desire for us is that we be satisfied with the good that you provide. Please help us run fast and far from greed. Please help us to learn to share with generosity and thereby maybe we will be lighter to run after your righteousness. And in you and in your righteous way, may we find the true contentment that you promise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.